Hi, and welcome to the Christian Fundamentals Foundations course. As we journey through these lessons together, my hope is that your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ will find meaningful expression and lead you on to maturity and fruitfulness in your walk with Him. I trust that this lesson will guide and encourage your heart. I was confident we could push through this tonight without without going too quickly or pushing too fast or too hard. So I am going to go a little quicker tonight than I probably normally would. But I think um, I think the stuff that we've got to do tonight, it, it, it's good that we have an understanding of it. My hope is that at the end of this, we'll understand the heart of what I'm going to be sharing uh, and that, that it becomes a positive motivation rather than just something we're afraid of because that's what most people feel or think of when we talk about our subject tonight, which is eternal judgment. Okay, it's really not that scary. That was just for effect and just for a laugh. We're going to be talking about eternal judgment. And I think the first thing I want to do tonight is just talk about the principles of judgment. So if I'm going to ju be, be judged on something, there's certain criteria that I would need that, that I'll be judged on. Uh, and this is how, how is it that God judges you and I? All right. Last week, you, we spoke about um, resurrection of the dead. I know Stephen handled that one with you. It's fascinating, very interesting lesson. But I wonder, we will all be resurrected to face judgment. And so tonight, I want to break down what that judgment will look like. The first thing I want to talk about is the four principles of judgment. How does God judge us? Well, the first one is that God judges us according to truth. So the truth. Jesus is the truth. Uh, the truth of the matter, the truth of the facts, not, uh, not some kind of subjective way of looking at things, but objectively. God doesn't judge us just on his opinion or our opinion. He judges us on the truth. And the truth applies to everybody the same, even to Jesus. It applies to all the same because truth is true, truth. And Romans 2, verse 1 and 2, well, let's just read verse 2. It says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. In other words, who judge others and who live in a certain kind of way. So that's number one. The first principle is God judges according to truth. The second one is that God judges according to man's deeds. There's a few scripture references we have here. First of all, Romans 2.6 says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Psalm 62.12, The Lord belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. And 1 Peter 1.17 again, Who without partiality judges according to each one's work. So in essence, we're going to see the same thing, the same principle pour it, um, come out in, in, in the rest of tonight's lesson. But a good way of thinking about this is when you talk about judgment, think of a courtroom. Okay, that's really helpful. Uh, and when you think of a courtroom in the sense of a believer, maybe let me paint this picture for you because it will help us later down the line as we go through our lesson. In the courtroom, you have the judge, you have the accuser, and you have the defendant. And in this case, we're the defendant. Jesus Christ is our intercessor, our attorney, our litigator before the Father. And everything that the accuser says about us just so happens to be true. <laughs> he will point out all the, all the bad things we've done, and he will mention all the evidence against us. 
And Jesus will say, although this is true, the price for this has been paid by my blood, by my death and my resurrection and made atonement to the court. And God as the righteous judge of all has said, I accept this sacrifice, this atonement for sin. Because don't forget, under law, with, with, there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Sin leads to death. It leads to bloodshed one way or another. And so Jesus shed his own blood voluntarily that we wouldn't have to. Okay, so we've got this idea now. There is an individual record kept in heaven of the entire life of every human being. And this refers not only to man's external observable actions, but also includes thoughts, words, motives of the heart and mind. So now in these scriptures we've just read, it said that God renders to us according to our deeds or the things we actually do. It doesn't actually talk about it, our intentions. But if you look at the way Jesus spoke very often uh, concerning our actions and our laws, he would say things like this. You have heard it said, referring to the law, that you should not commit murder. But I say to you, if you so much as hate your, if you hate your brother and are unwilling to forgive and be reconciled with him, you already have that spirit of murder working within your heart and life. Jesus took an external thing and made it internal. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after another woman, you have already committed adultery in your heart. You are already giving yourself over to those things. And so there's a warning there that Jesus is talking to us about, about guarding the thoughts and the intents of our heart, because those thoughts and intents lead to our actions. And those actions have severe consequences. Let's be honest. If I lust after another woman, being a married man, in my heart, that's a sin against God and it's a sin against my wife and Jesus calls it as much. But the consequences of that sin are very different from if I were to actually commit adultery with that woman. Would you agree? Especially in this life. Now, that doesn't make it any better that, oh, it's not a lesser sin, but the consequences, the outworking of these things. So Jesus says to us, if we want to avoid these sins, we need to actually pay attention to the inward attitudes of our heart. We'll see later on that although God judges us according to our deeds, our, he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And he knows that those are the things that guide our lives and will result in how we live and how we will ultimately be judged. So number one, God judges according to the truth. Uh, in other words, our, and the truth. Number two, God judges according to man's deeds. Not according to our intentions, by the way, that's also very important. Many of us want to do good and we say things like, oh, God knows my heart. We say things like, it's the thought that counts. Is it though? Uh, number three, God judges without partiality. Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. And God, what that means is that God's judgments are not influenced by external factors like your color, like how much money you have, how educated you are, what social uh, standing you have, who you were born to, none of those things. God's judgment is according to truth and it's impartial. In other words, he's utterly fair. 1 Samuel 6, 7 says that although man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And so here we see that. That God looks at the deeds and we get judged, but God also looks at our hearts. And 
we kind of very often differentiate these two things and yes they're differentiable if that's the right you can differentiate between them but they're very much linked as well in our life and our outworking and so to separate them from our experience to separate my thoughts from my experience uh, is often a very hairy thing to try and do i'm sure some of you have had a dream uh, that felt so very real it had a real emotional thing uh, it shifted and moved your heart or you fell in love or you were fearful and these are emotions but they have real physical outworkings in our lives and number four god judges according to light what does that mean that means that god judges according to our understanding of right and wrong of who he is of his word of our measure of light romans 2 12 for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law so in other words we will be judged by god according to our consciences have we violated our consciences along the way? And so, yeah, each person will be judged according to their measure of moral light and revelation. Luke 12, 48. For everyone to whom much is given, much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So this is something we grow in in our Christian life. The more we know God, the, the greater the responsibility we have to live out what we know of him. That in one way is a fearful thing. It's like, I'm going to stop reading my Bible because that just makes me more vulnerable to be judged by something that I now know that I never knew before. Ignorance is bliss here, right? Well, no, not actually. Um, the, Bible, the Bible teaches us basically that um, what you don't know could kill you. What's the, uh, hold on one second. What's that scripture? Is that four, six, I think it is. Uh, just reminded of it now. But I don't remember the word. I just remember where it is. Yeah, my people are destroyed, he says here, for a lack of knowledge. People are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So, in other words, having greater knowledge empowers me to cooperate with the way God's blessing works. So, in other words, if I know God's judgment on this thing is good and that this area is blessed, I can give myself to living within the ambit of that goodness and that blessing so that my reward on earth may be an experiential, uh, may have the experience of Christ in it, and my eternal reward, I can sow into that. I can actively engage in my eternity now because I know what is good and I know what God delights in, so I can therefore give myself to that. I also know what God is not pleased with, so I can move and separate myself it's our sinful nature that longs for the things we shouldn't have that kind of makes us not want to know the other stuff because actually i want to deal i want to have these things uh, and i want to enjoy them and not feel judged for it isn't that the the ethos of the world around us today i want to live my life how i see it and i don't want to be judged for it these days you get into trouble not for what you've done but just because of a judgment or opinion you may have and so knowing the word of God and, know, and, and, and God, what he does is he judges us according to our measure of light. Our desire should be to gain as much light as we can, that we may walk in the light and experience the good of the light uh, and that it may illuminate our lives and illuminate the world through our lives. As a righteous judge, God, consider, God considers our entire being. 
He judges us according to the truth of who we are and what we've done, taking into consideration our own understanding of what is right and wrong. So God will not judge me in the same way that he will judge somebody who's just gotten born again today. Somebody who's just gotten born again today and still has to grow might be able to watch movies that I that God would not be pleased with me watching. Maybe able to use language or go to places or have certain you understand what I'm saying? As I grow, our level of consecration and sanctification will grow as well. And we'll give ourselves more and more to go. Now, we want to talk a little bit about the actual act of judgment. And there's a, In putting this together, we need to understand that none of us really have the, the exact timeline on how things are going to work. And this is exactly where this is going to happen. And and this is the exact order and sequence of events. There are some things that we can draw, but really what I want us to, to, to get a hold of this evening is not so much the nitty-gritty details of the practicalities, but the heart behind judgment. And we're going to look at a bit of both of them so that we get context. We're going to understand how God judges believers versus how God judges unbelievers and what, what those judgments will look like. So the first thing we're going to see here is that there are going to be separate judgments for believers and unbelievers. Believers will be judged before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that's all of us, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay? So we're all going to face that judgment seat of Christ as believers. And this judgment takes place when Christ comes again. It is not a judgment concerning your salvation that was already settled at Calvary, but it is a judgment that of, of, of works and of service for the purpose of reward. This is not going to determine where we spend eternity as believers. This is going to determine how we spend eternity. Now, let me just give you a little segue here, just something that I, that I found really interesting when I learned this uh, a few years ago. There's an eschatologic judgment of the apocalyptic um, scriptures that, that refer to judgment and the end times. They point to what's called eschatology, which is a study of the end times, when judgment will take place. Okay, So at the end, Jesus will come and he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous and he will give out uh, to each one what is due to them. But there's something incredible that you and I have already experienced as an eschatological event in our lives here and now. And that is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we receive him as our Lord and Savior, and through the act of baptism and being filled with the Spirit, an end time eternal eschatological judgment has been made over your life and mine to say, this person is my child. I now judge them to be righteous. So in other words, a judgment has already been made over your life and mine as we have given and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not necessarily waiting for a judgment for, what our, for where we will spend eternity. We know where we will spend eternity with great confidence in our hearts because of the judgment God has already made over us through our faith in Jesus Christ. And that should fill you with excitement and anticipation and should take away this fear of this dreaded judgment that is coming and we'll get into that a little bit more later on the eternal judgment of the ungodly takes place at the great white throne 
at the close of the millennial reign of Christ. Now, again, I don't want to go into all of these details of what the end times are going to look like, and or but these are different events that scriptures speak of. So you've got different prophetic books, and you've got the book of Revelation, so you've got uh, some Daniel, you've got some parts of Matthew, lots of revelation that point and say what's going to happen at the end times. And so, although we different people believe many different things concerning all of these, the rapture and the coming of Christ and the millennial reign and, and all of these things and the Antichrist and how that all works, what I want to at least emphasize is there are separate events that will take place in the way that God will judge or how the judgment will unfold is probably the best way to say it. And then scripture also mentions a third judgment in which Christ will judge the Gentile nations. And again, I'm not going to go into that now. So we're going to start tonight by looking at how God will judge the wicked, those who have not believed in Jesus. And we're going to go to the book of Revelation for that. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. And it says, the I know Stephen made you guys all read last week. Did you guys enjoy that? Okay, since you're nodding, Tash, go on. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting that, Michael, but yeah. yeah, I'm not shy to read. I've never been, so. Oh. Okay, so Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There we go. Thank you, Natasha. So that last sentence really kind of sums it all up. This is this is right at the end where the wicked and those who have deliberately rejected God's gift of grace. Uh, it's the ultimate end of all sin and all rebellion against God. And it says here that all only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will escape this judgment. So in other words, you and I, through our faith in Jesus, have escaped this experience of judgment because we have already been judged as righteous. So let's look at what the judgment of believers then will look like. Every believer, and again, this is not the judgment for our salvation. This is the judgment of how we lived out our lives, how we lived out our faith in Jesus during this life on earth. Every believer will have to give account. Romans 10, 14, verse, sorry, Romans 14, verses 10 and 12. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt to your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Do you see how in, in, in how many places the same thing comes up? The same principle. Paul reminding us, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We read this one earlier on. This idea is repeated again and again throughout Scripture. And yet it's very seldom taught in churches, isn't it? This idea that one day we will all have to give an account. It's a sobering reality. It's a humbling reality. And it, it puts into us the fear of God, the healthy, reverential fear of God. 
that although he desires to bless us and 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 how we will spend our eternity will be determined by how we live our life now so in effect every act of a christian has a definite value of some kind either good or bad positive or negative Derek Prince says, every act that is not performed in faith and obedience for the glory of God is unacceptable to God and therefore bad. It's on this simple basis that clearly revealed that each one of us as Christians must expect to be judged. Um, and I think for me, what I'd really like you to understand is, is, is the context that this, uh, this applies certain Sometimes we can make this about every little thing. You know, I just had a cup of coffee. Did I do it in faith? And did I do it? This talks, when you understand this in the context of my pursuits and the pursuits and the, and the desires of my heart and how it, and what it is I'm investing my life in, that's the best way to understand it. You see, the judgment of Christians will not be a judgment of condemnation. Because, and as I've already said, as I've already said, God has already judged us, has not condemned us as righteous. And these beautiful verses tell us what God's done with our sin and all the things which made us unrighteous. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. Isn't, doesn't that blow your mind? God doesn't blot out our transgressions for our sake. That's kind of what we would think. But he blots out our transgressions for his sake. That is how much he wants intimacy and fellowship with you and I. That blows my mind. That though we deserve punishment, though we've rejected and rebelled against him for his sake, for his joy of having relationship with you and I, he's willing to forget all of that and forgive it. And I will not remember your sins. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So really, like I've said, God desires not to condemn us, but he's made a way, even through confession uh, and repentance, that our record of sin can be continually wiped clean in his presence. He said to Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I shall make you white as snow. I will make you acceptable to be in my presence. So... It's clear to understand then that this judgment that you and I will face one day when we stand before Jesus is a judgment to assess the rewards that are due to you and I for the fruitfulness of our lives here on earth. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 says, "Judge, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts then each one's praise will come from God. Isn't that beautiful? So God will reveal our true motives and our true intentions. This is why Jesus says, hey guys, stop paying so much attention just to these outward things. What's inside is what's really going to make the difference. It's very easy to live a religious life that can look like a Christian to the world around you. But when we are quiet and we're alone with Jesus, he will search our true motives and our true hearts. And that will, if we're willing to allow him to do that, that will cause our thoughts, our motivations, our pursuits to line up with his. That he may be glorified in and through us here in this life so that he can later glorify us 
in the next. So let's look at the test of fire. And, and really what this means is that all our works and everything we've done will pass through the fire of God's judgment. Years ago, I heard a, um, I heard a testimony by, what's her name? She's a very famous worship singer. She used to sing for, uh, for Bethel. I forget her name now. Anyway, she was talking about, she was giving her testimony and she spoke about the eyes of Jesus that burn with love. And I've never heard those words before. I, I, I know that when Jesus comes, the Bible says there'll be fire in his eyes. To me, that used to put fear into me. That's, that's consuming. He's an all-consuming fire. But the truth is, his fire is a fire of love. And only things that are made up of and motivated by and created from genuine and true and sincere love can make it through the fire of and when you think about it that way, wow, this is an incredible thing that Jesus is saying in your life right now, I want you to let me look into your heart with those eyes that burn with love so that everything that is not of love can get burned up inside of you. Because one day, everything that you do that is not of love will be burned up. So 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So here we see again, this is not a judgment of your soul, but a judgment of the work. Christ is the foundation. He is the one our lives have been established on. What we build upon that foundation is what will be judged. In other words, what am I doing with Jesus? How do I, what does Jesus mean to me? Not just for my salvation, but in my everyday life. What do I do with Jesus? Do I walk with him? Am I a true disciple? And here's the criteria that our works will be based, will be judged on. Number one, motive. Do we seek glory for Jesus to glorify him, to represent him and make him known? Or are we trying to glorify ourselves? Number two, on obedience. Are we obedient to the word that God has given us, the word that we understand? It's very interesting to me in the parable that Jesus spoke of the man who builds his house on the rock. He says, those who build their house, those who, who hear the word and do it are wise and they build their house. It's like, it's like a rock. He says, but or I think it could be James who says, but those who hear the word and don't do it deceive themselves. And what that really means is this. I, I deceive myself when I hear the word of God and don't put it into action. My deception is that I think I know this thing to be true. But I'm deceived because if I truly knew that it was true, I would be walking it. I would be living it. I would be applying it in my life. And so many areas of our lives, we know things that are in the Bible. We know them to be the will of God. We think just the fact that we can, can quote a verse or understand something that that, that makes it true and, and effective in our lives. But when the rubber hits the road, we're deceived. We fall flat on our faces. 
So motive, obedience, and thirdly, power. This is a very interesting one. Are we seeking to serve God in the inadequacy of our own carnal strength, or have we been renewed within and empowered by the Holy Spirit? So Isaiah 64, verse 6, you can write it in there if you like, says, even our good deeds, our good works, the best that I have to bring to God in my own flesh and ability is like filthy rags to him. And so this is really amazing when you consider not only the new birth, but the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that God, although he expects us to do miraculous things that we are unable to do, he comes alongside us to, to make up the difference and to live a supernatural life naturally, avoiding temptation that people can't avoid. We can we get to walk in righteousness and holiness by the grace and the empowerment of God through the Holy Spirit and so many other things. 1 Corinthians 20, sorry, Colossians 1 29, Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. So my striving is not of flesh and blood. My striving, my working is by the spirit, by the grace and in the rhythms of the grace of God. That's amazing. Those works are the works which are born of God. They're inspired by God. They are the works that are gold and silver and precious jewels. But the works that I try to muster up to somehow please or appease God they're like wood and chaff, and they don't cut the mustard. All right, point number seven. So we've, I think that really deals with sort of the motivations behind um, our lives and the things that we do and how we will be judged. Point number seven comes down to the more practical things of Christian service. And this is the, the part where I ask you to read those two parables. The one, the parable of the talents, where a master went and gave to one servant, uh, five talents, to another one, two, to another one, one. He said, trade till I come, and he came back. And uh, One get, who had five gave him ten. The one who had two gave him four. And the one who had one only gave him one because he buried it because he was afraid of the master. And Jesus and God, or the master, rebuked them. So the last one. The first one he rewarded. The second one he rewarded. And the third one, he said, he cast him out and he took what he had and gave it to the one who had the most. Okay. And the parable of the minus is a very similar parable. So what I would like to do tonight is just draw the lessons out of those parables. And if you haven't read them before tonight, that's okay. The references are there. I would encourage you go through them in your own time after tonight's lesson. And they will also mean all the more to you. So the first parable of the talents, for those who are only listening to the recording, is found in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And the parable of the minus is found in Luke 19, verses 11 through 21. Here are some of the points we can glean. God does not expect more from us than we are able to give. In other words, God is not unfair. Now, that statement is, is true, but... In part, also, God does expect from us what we in our own flesh and ability are unable to give. What God expects from us is to allow Jesus to work in and through us. So he gives us everything we need and thereby our, his expectations of us uh, are higher or different than they would be if we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us and with us. But nonetheless, he doesn't expect us to live a life of purity without his grace. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You can't do this. And so he has given us his son. 
And so what he expects of us is right and is fair in the light of what he has made available to us. Great and precious promises that we may live a life that is blessed and empowered by him. The second thing we can see through these parables is that God rewards each one according to the measure of his or her increase or his fruitfulness that has been achieved. So in other words, those who have been faithful with little will, will receive much. Those who have been unfaithful with little will receive less. We see this in our workplaces. Um, the, the one example I, I regularly use is, I remember when I started working in transport, within the first three months, one of the, uh, the trucks that I'd sent a whole bunch of goods up on was in a bad accident and everything literally got burned up. The driver came out okay, but the truck was written off and all the, all the cargo was And I nearly fell apart. My, uh, the client at that stage was a very demanding man, lovely man. I respect him greatly. But um, he really made me jump through burning hoops to get to the bottom of what was going on and take stock of what had happened and fix it, et cetera, et cetera. I was so overwhelmed. I remember going to bed literally in tears, broken over a truck that spilled some goods on the, on the ground. And, you know, I mean, I worked in transport for five years. After, after two years, three years, truck had an accident. First question, okay, is the driver all right? Okay, all right. Now I know what to do. I can handle this now. I'm not going to fall apart from this anymore. Why? Because I've grown, my capacity has grown, etc., etc. And so this same principle works itself out in our lives. As we are faithful with little, God increases our measure of responsibility and he increases our measure of grace that we may handle more, be responsible for more, and therefore uh, accountable for more within this life. But also the same is true as we go from this life into the next. So God is watching how we manage what we are managing so that our level of authority or responsibility in the new heaven and the new earth will be very much based on how we handle and grow within this life. We also see that those who don't do anything with what God has entrusted to them, God rebukes them. He calls them wicked and lazy and casts them out. Simple as that. Not much more to say. In the parable of the vine, Bible says those who don't produce fruit, Jesus cuts the, the vine dresser, cuts them off. In other words, is there evidence of real, of, 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 of taking what Jesus has given you, not just his forgiveness, but his life and his grace within you? Or are you just sort of taking it for granted so that you can live a life of green leaves for yourself? Or are you actually producing fruit for the vine dresser, the one for whom you actually exist? And if we just take this whole message of grace just for ourselves and use it, we've missed the point of it. Our lives haven't been changed or transformed by it. And ultimately, there's a judgment that comes for that. We also see that greater responsibility is given to those who are proven faithful, they're rewarded. And then we also see finally that in God's eyes, wickedness is not only attributed to the works of disobedience, but also to the failure of doing what we know to be right when it lies within our power to do so. So in both parables, we see a difference. We see that it's the wickedness of the servants that led to their condemnation and rejection. In both cases, the judgment was based on what the servants omitted doing rather than on any act of wickedness that they did. See, James 4.17 says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. That places quite a demand on you and I, don't you think? I mean, if we just stop and think about that for a moment, 
Just think about that as we go our daily lives and we see people around us perhaps struggling in certain areas and we could probably help and we don't. When we, we know the story of the Good Samaritan, but we tend to act very often more like the Pharisee um, and the Sadducee. And it, 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 this kind of verse allows us or enables us to really search our hearts and our motives and our behavior before and in the presence of God. Our faithfulness in handling the authority and responsibilities that Christ bestows upon us in this life will determine the measure of authority and responsibility we will receive when his kingdom is established. And that's what this judgment is really all about. That's the judgment that you and I get to sow into and to work towards now. Derek Prince says, and I, I really love the way the second sentence here, he says, for those who truly love Christ, there can be no greater joy or privilege than that of continuing to serve their Lord. For those who are faithful, this privilege begun here in time will continue, will be extended throughout the ages of eternity. Isn't that wonderful? So what's the secret? The secret is to, is to align our attitude with the thinking that it is our privilege to be able to serve God and represent him faithfully. If it's not a privilege, there's something amiss. If it's a burden or a duty, we've missed it somewhere and, and, and if needs be we need to get help we need to speak to somebody more mature than us and help us align our hearts with the goodness of god's grace and his love and now we're going to talk a little bit about working faith and we're going to start connecting the dots of these principles of judgment and what it will look like and how it will work uh right down to the practicalities and i'm, I'm basically going to read through the notes of this section because they're not really summarized they they there's, there's a lot of content there, so let me just work through it as it is. In point number six, we discussed the test of fire. And in point number seven, we discussed judgment in Christian service. And in studying these two scriptures, we can see the following distinction. So here's where some differences come in. In the case described by Paul, the man's works are rejected, but he himself is saved. So in other words, a man who brought of, of hay and straw works like that his works were rejected but he himself was saved and in the parables of jesus the of the miners and the talents the unfaithful servants not only lose their reward but are also cast out they're rejected and so we see a difference here and it's important that we understand what this difference is first of all the man mentioned by paul tried to do something for his master he tried to put works to his faith the reference to wood hay and straw suggests that he did quite a lot his work however could not withstand the fire of god's judgment his efforts however unwise or misguided and unrewarded did at least prove that his faith in christ was genuine so in other words this guy tried to live out his faith but he tried to live it out in his own strength the, the unfaithful servants mentioned in both of the parables did absolutely nothing for their masters. Neither good nor bad. Their profession of faith was deemed worthless and insincere as it produced no corresponding action. Because, as we've said in I think just about every single lesson in this course, faith without works is dead so we see this distinction here this idea of passive christianity 
is just incongruent with scripture. And we need to understand that in the light of the of judgment which will come upon us. And allow that, whether through fear or whether through positive motivation, to get us on the road of activity or living out our faith uh, towards fruitfulness. And now, uh, the last point before we conclude the lesson, I want to talk about the wheat and the tears, the judgment of hypocrites. Mark, would you mind if I pushed your button to read this portion for us? Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, So, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Think that beats Thank you, Mark. Natasha's link. <laughs> it does indeed. Thank you, Mark. I just want to highlight to you verse 41. There's there's some very interesting things that we can draw out of this. Just just one verse. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom. So, in other words, people who profess to be Christians, who walk around within the body of Christ and look like Christians in many ways. And he says, but he, but he says, those who practice lawlessness. Now, what does that mean? That's, that's rebellion. That means we live as though there is no law, no moral standard, no criteria by which to live. In other words, people that call themselves Christians, but they live as they please. They still do what they want, when they want, how they want. Their, their lives are not submitted to any form of lordship. So here we see, as the parable says, that the wheat represents true believers. It is the hypocrites. This word hypocrite, hypocrite, it's a, it's a, forget the two Greek words, but really what it comes down to is the imagery of theater, 
where there's actors who come on with a stage. And, and, and in the beginning, there used to be one actor who used to put on a mask to represent one person and do the act and then swap masks to be another person within the act. And so he could play multiple people within the act of this play. And that's what a hypocrite is. I know because I was one for many years. One of the, the <laughs> before Pastor Andreas took me by the ear and pulled me out of my double life, I had a church life and which had my church friends, but I wasn't really very popular in that life. And it wasn't very appealing to me as a young, young man and as a teenager. And then I went on a tour and I met a whole bunch of other people and discovered a whole nother life. And in this life, Michael wasn't the nerdy one who was, who was teased and beat up. This one, somehow, don't know how, Michael ended up being the life of the party. And Michael was, was the cool one. And so Michael had this life, which these people must never know about. And then Michael had this life, which these people must definitely never know about. Until these people eventually found out about this Michael and my worlds collided and everything fell apart. <laughs> By the grace of God. That's a story for another day. I don't know why I went there. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, into my life came a man called Andreas who taught me that there is indeed a moral code, that there is a way to live for Jesus, not just on a Sunday or a Wednesday night, but every day of my life and taught me how to do that. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm so immensely grateful for his influence in my life. All right. So. We're speaking here about those whose lives are truly submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. And a hypocrite, a hypocrite, is one who puts on a mask to say, yes, my life is submitted to Jesus. But in reality, he lives and he lives for himself. The Bible says angels gather them out of God's kingdom. And before the true Christians come before Christ's judgment seat, there will be a sifting process. All the hypocrites and false Christians will first be separated from the genuine Christians and will receive the judgment due to them for their hypocrisy and for their falsehood. Only true, sincere believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that will be for their reward. So in conclusion, it's important to understand, it's very important to understand that God's judgment will be according to our personal response to Jesus. And when I say that, I don't just mean that once upon a time I prayed a prayer. It's a, God will judge me according to my personal response to Jesus every day. When, it, when he gives me unction, when he gives me leading, when he convicts me, when he corrects me. What do I do with that? Faith requires action and action re, actions reveal our faith. I think that, that, that has been a theme right through our entire course. Faith without works is dead, insincere, and worthless. Derek Prince says this way, not only this is dead faith, does it fail to produce any works of service that can be rewarded, it even fails to secure for the one who professes it the salvation of his soul. Wow, what a statement. Someone who professes faith in Christ without ever actively serving him is a hypocrite. So the personal application, I'll just read it out and we can then close off. The truths contained in this lesson are both sobering and challenging. It's important to remember, however, that God's unyielding nature of love means that he will always prefer mercy over judgment, uh, mercy and forgiveness over judgment and condemnation. We, however, must determine in our hearts what we will do with the mercy and grace 
that is freely given to us through Jesus Christ. That and that alone will determine both how and where we spend our eternity. So if you begin knitting these pieces of foundational doctrines together, you can clearly see a, an order, a clear order and a clear flow. From right at the beginning, a repentance from dead works, turning away, faith towards God. Hold on, I hit a blank. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, all right? So the doctrine of baptisms, which is your transition, it's, your, it's the coming through, coming through the waters into new life. Laying on of hands, recognition, promotion, uh, resurrection of the dead for eternal judgment. All right. And so these things all kind of fit together very neatly. And what I want to do is just go back to that, that, that scripture in Hebrews chapter 6 once again, because it says something very interesting. Uh, when he talks about these foundations of doctrines, he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, wholeness, completeness, not laying again the foundation of and foundations of repentance. So, so next week, the title of the lesson is On to Perfection. And it will round out this course of, of teaching it's the 12th and the last lesson of this course, and it's going to be the last one. And I'm very excited for it. Um, so next week will be our last time meeting here for this course. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.